Well, good morning. <laughs> Someone said they like when I say that, so I try and remember and say it. A um, couple of stories for you this morning. I can remember, um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll tell you this one first. I remember being at Multnomah um, where Mon and I met. Oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, we, we had this group of friends, so we've been, at this point, we've been in seminary for a couple of years, um, and hanging out with these people all the time, over and over and over again, and so one day, this friend of mine uh, says, hey, is there any chance we could go this week and grab a coffee? And I'm thinking, oh, I'm kind of into Monica, I don't want to go have a coffee with another girl, um, but uh, it wasn't that kind of coffee. So we go out for coffee and she has this moment where she's like, I asked you out for coffee because I have something of a confession to make. I have harbored some stuff in my heart toward you since way back at the beginning of our time at Multnomah. She's like, I've been really, like, really envious of you. And, uh, and I just held it inside. And she's like, do you want to know what it was that really gave it away and exposed it to me? She's like, it was the day that I realized that your Scottish accent is real and you weren't faking it for attention. <laughs> she's like, for, for months, she's like, I would listen to you talk and I'd be like, it's not even a good Scottish accent. <laughs> uh, she's like, I just, I just had this thing inside of me and I didn't realize it and I was using any excuse I could find uh, to, to make you look bad in my eyes. I, it reminds me, if I go back a little bit further in time, there's a very distinct memory. There, there are lots of examples I could give more current, but this is one that really stood out to me. I was in college doing a math degree, um, and there was this guy. He was a year above me uh, in college, um, really good looking. The women loved him. He had this big group of guys. They all lived up on campus, uh, this big group of lads that would play together. I was, I was at home and, and commuting in. And I remember whenever I would see this guy, I just like, I just took an instant dislike into him. I was like, I don't like him. And he'd walk down the corridor and I'd just look at him and growl at him as I walked by. And friends of mine would talk to him. One of my friends who was really attractive and I was really attracted to her at the time was really interested in him and that made it even worse. Um, but I just remember like this thing inside of me that was like, for no reason, I just do not like this guy. I don't want to be around him. And I created a narrative in my head. He's a total player. He's into my friend. He's just going to sleep with her and then discard her and break her heart. He's just going to go out and get drunk. He's going to do nothing with his life. He, uh, he, he's probably going to flunk out of college and end up on the streets. Like That's the kind of guy this is. And then one day, I was in Starbucks and I walk to the back and I see one of my friends and I go over and talk to this friend who's now a TV presenter back at home. Um, and I, I, I'm talking to Storm and I look over and like she's at a table for two and the other person's not there so I'm talking away and then all of a sudden her companion arrives back at the table and I did, he walks over and he's like, all right. And I was like, everything in me just like, I hate you. And she introduces me. I didn't know his name up until this point. knew nothing about him. And then he starts talking and he asks me questions. And yeah, I plant a church. Uh, I work for the church. I'm awesome. And, and he's just like, oh, that's exciting. And oh, Storm's told me so much about you. You seem like, you, you sound like an amazing guy. Thank you for just your friendship to her. And he just starts 
talking and I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy is nothing like I imagined. You're like the sweetest guy on the planet. He's like, yeah, he's going, you know, it's really hard with this group of friends and they all like love to party and I just really want to do well. So like I have to fight them all the time. I'm not coming to the pub. I want to study. And he's like, and I'm in the library. And he's like, most of the time when you see me, they've dragged me out of the library. They're trying to take me somewhere. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, I had this guy so wrong because of something in me that reacted to something that I saw in him that made me make a judgment about him that affected how I treated him until God in his grace showed me a different way. I'm sure you've all got stories of these judgments that we make about people, but we're in this series uh, on vices. We're looking at these sin issues that in the history of the church, uh, collectively theologians and spiritual thinkers have gathered what they think are the most uh, gruesome sins, the ones that fuel all of the other things that we do, and they call them the capital vices. So just to remind you what a vice is before we, we talk about this morning's one. A vice is a habit or character trait that inclines us toward a certain type of action. So you can think of this as the rut that your life is stuck in that forces you or encourages you to keep going down a track that you know is not the way that God wants us to walk. So today we're going to look at the sin of envy. And we often don't have this defined right in our minds. The, the definition we're working with this morning, envy is resenting another person's good gifts or standing. So we have this thing culturally, you know, synonyms. We have these words that kind of go together and we, we sort of see them as meaning the same thing. So three words that we use all the time. We use envy, we use jealousy, and then we've got this biblical word coveting. And so when we use them, we kind of interchange them. I feel jealous of that person, or I envy that person, or I really want or covet what they have. Um, So they are synonymous, right? And and some of the use is synonymous. But what I want to do for a minute, just to bring some clarity around this vice of envy, is look at some of the distinctions between these three words. And what this means for us as we try and explore how this vice is present in our life. So... The three words are up here with some definitions, but I want to draw attention to the Latin words. So we're not going to look at Greek and Hebrew. There's lots of, in Hebrew, it's all synonyms. In Greek, there's, there's a little bit more nuance, but the words that we're using come from Latin. So I just want you to pay attention to some of the differences here. So the word jealousy means to be fiercely protective or vigilant of your rights, possessions, or relationships. It comes from this Latin word, zelosis which we get the word zeal from, right? So it's about being zealous towards something. Um, You've got this word coveting, which we know from the Bible. It's one of the commandments. Don't covet your neighbor's house, wife, or donkey. Um, How many of you are coveting a donkey right now? Just to confess. Um, So this is the yearning for possession of something. And so the Latin word in here, you'll know part of the Latin word, right? Cupiditas, it's where we get, it comes from the name Cupid, um, from his character. It's, it's, uh, the word Cupiditas in Latin is about passionate desire or lust or ambition to have a particular thing. So jealousy, you're fiercely possessive of what you already have. Jeal- uh, coveting, you want to possess something that you don't. But envy comes from this Latin word or two words together. And really what it means is to regard something maliciously or hold a grudge. 
to be resentful of something that you see in someone else. So quite often we'll say, you know, I really envy this in the person when what you mean is I covet what they have or I'm jealous of something that I have. Um, But envy at the end of the day is I see something in someone else and it's not enough to have it. I resent them for having it. And if I could have my way, I would make sure that they didn't have it. So there's something more malicious and vindictive in envy. One way you can think of this is jealousy and coveting are about, uh, sorry, jealousy is about what we have. So I'm fiercely protective of what I have. Coveting and envy are about what I don't have. One, I just want the possession. One, I want it. And I don't want the other person to have it in the process. Lots of cultural depictions of envy. Um, the old Disney movies are the best, right, when you're looking at capital vices. So here's a couple of pictures for us to remind us of what envy looks like. The Wicked Witch in Snow White is depicting the vice of envy in full display. What does she do? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest of them all? Pastor Scotty, he answers. No. <laughs> Who is the fairest of them all? What's going on in this moment? The the evil queen finds her worth and her value in exceeding the beauty of everyone else in the kingdom. So long as the mirror replies to her, you are fair queen, that she's happy and she goes about life doing what she does. But one day, this girl appears on the scene, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Well, Snow White is the fairest of them all. And it sends the evil queen into a rage. So she goes from having value built in, my worth is in how attractive I am compared to everyone else. Notice it's not vainglory, how attractive I am. It's how attractive I am compared to everybody else. So, so I, I, her identity there, when she realizes she doesn't have it, resentment builds towards this person who does have it. And then what goes on from there? I want to take it from her and it becomes malicious action toward the person. So she turns herself into the old hag, the beauty of Disney in this moment. Again, the old movies do this well. I don't advocate so much for some of the new ones. Um, The old movies do this so well. Um, She transforms herself into her true character, right? This is that, this picture, I love it because it depicts her reflection as it really is, is this old hag and she poisons the apple and she goes to destroy Snow White. So it, it, it's not just I want what you have, but I'm going to destroy you so that I can maintain being on the top. Another image from a Disney movie that you may remember well is this one. Heartbreaking moment, Right? Mufasa leading this amazing kingdom. Uh, uh, Simba is going to be raised to lead the kingdom, married to Nala, and they're going to have beautiful kids and rule all of the jungle. Um, And Scar over in the corner, envious of his brother, wanting what he has and plotting his downfall. And you get this moment where, uh, where Mufasa is falling off the cliff and there's this, this, I mean, Disney plays with you, right? Scar goes over to the edge and you think he's going to help him. And it's like grabs hold of his hands and you think, oh, he's going to pull him up and it's going to be this redemptive moment for Scar. And instead he grabs his hands and he throws him to his death. Because it's not enough to want what his brother had, he has to destroy his brother to come out on top. And I think think this image, more than many, uh, shows the the danger of envy, right? Mufasa's not living in a place of envy, he's living in a place of 
uh, plenty, confident identity, love for his kingdom, uh, and people are happy and they're singing and, and all the animals doing their fancy displays. And then uh, when Mufasa's dead and Scar takes the throne, it's darkness and depravity and people are starving uh, and upset and the hyenas rule. You see, when we allow something like envy to rule in our life, we see the kind of kingdom that it helps us to build. Lastly, we don't always think in these terms, but the fire of envy is stoked through social media. Right? Probably the place where we encounter these feelings the most. You see someone post, you see their beauty. Sometimes what you see is, I want that. Sometimes what you do inside is, I hate that person for being so perfect. We see, uh, you know, we, we do this, we curate. I've said this before, I went to a coffee shop. And I'm like, I want a picture of my coffee, so let's move that, let's shift the table, let's turn that, let's see if I can stand on my chair to get the perfect picture to make it Instagram worthy, right? And we cultivate these fake images of life, and then we jump on social media, we look at them, and then we start to resent people for things that aren't real. Um, But I think social media exposes something in us. It leaves us feeling less than other people and resenting the things that are around us. The sin uh, of envy is, it's all the way through scripture. Um, So we're going to look at just a couple of verses and then a couple of stories um, to help make sense of this. But scripture warns very clearly away from the danger of envy. So here's just a few scriptures. Romans 1.29. So this part of the passage, there's a descent into increasing depravity. And as they're describing the level of depravity of humanity apart from Jesus, it says they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. It goes on and on. But these people full of envy that leads to things like murder and strife and deceit and malice. To the Galatians, Notice it's chapter 5, so we're talking about the fruit of the flesh in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. This puts disunity between people. First uh, Peter 2, after given this beautiful chapter 1 description of the living hope that is made available to us freely in Jesus, and that we're supposed to fix our eyes on what is imperishable rather than the perishable things round about us. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind, Um, constant exhortations that this is something that we are supposed to not liken ourselves and make every effort to rid ourselves of. What does envy look like when it's in us? We see it when we begin to get critical and unnecessarily critical about certain people. You are probably guilty of envy if you're really good at picking out the flaws that you see in the world round about you. Uh, You walk into a room and you can always tell what's wrong with someone else. You can tell you've got envy when you're around people who are uh, above you in the chain of command or who have more than you in the things of the world and you begin to feel resentful toward their superiority. Uh, You begin to feel defensive around people that are above you in the chain. You know it's there when you see someone else get something good and it just grinds inside and you kind of wish they didn't have it. 
Envy is at play. So I'm going to build off just two comments about envy. The first one, envy traps us in comparison. This is what envy is doing. It it, it objectifies humanity and makes it an us against them. So in envy, we're trying to build our identity and our value through comparing ourselves to the people around about us. We see this dynamic so clearly in the Joseph story. I want you to pay attention as, as we read through this to the brothers' responses to what they see happen and ask yourself, is the response that they feel proportional to what's going on in the story? So Genesis chapter 37, this is starting in verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. Now Israel, this is Jacob, renamed Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So just a reminder, favoritism does not bode well. Joseph loved, uh, I said to some, I was with some people last week, side note, I was with some people, there are two types of parent, right? So I was with some people uh, last week or a week, week, couple of weeks ago, and I just, they made a comment about their kids and it just tongue in cheek. I was like, what one's your favorite? And the dad kind of hesitated thoughtfully and the mom was like oh the middle one (laughs) I was like (laughs) I was like whoa Uh, (laughs) so Joseph Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made so Jacob makes this ornate robe for Joseph when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them they hated him and could not speak a kind word about him Dad bought my fancy jacket, and their response is hatred and no kind word. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had where binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous or the word kana means uh, envious of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So there's this favoritism going on. The brothers are, are now in competition with Joseph and what's the result resentment that leads to hatred and we know how the story goes right because of this favoritism because of their resentment toward the brother they they plot to kill him Reuben says let's not do that let's preserve his life they sell him into slavery he ends up in Egypt and all of this stuff gets fulfilled because he ends up there in a place where God has placed him uh, uh, and saves people from famine and disaster But in this story, you see the envy at play, the resentment that builds up, the comparison one to another, the 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 not just I want a coat like he had, but I am willing to destroy your life to keep you down so that I can preserve the image and the picture and the status quo that I've built. We see the exact same dynamic when you go to the complete other end of the Bible and you look at the end of the Jesus story. 
Envy is at play clearly in the crucifixion narrative. You get this moment in Matthew 27 when the crowd had gathered. So uh, Jesus is, is before Pilate. When the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew, Pilate knew, that it was out of, the, the NIV says self-interest, the word is phthosos, say that one, phthosos, um, which is the word for envy, and this is the word that means resentment. Uh, for he knew it was out of resentful envy that they'd handed Jesus over to him. Pilate, this Roman ruler that doesn't know God, was able to see the envy that was causing these religious leaders to plot the downfall of this person who was holy and pure. Makes me think of my coffee shop encounter as internally I was plotting the downfall of one of the sweetest, kindest people because of the brokenness that was in me. Statement number two, envy is the enemy of love. I should have said an enemy of love because there's more than that. Why is it the enemy of love? Because it objectifies people, seeing them as rivals rather than people to be loved and people who are worthy of love. Paul, when he's writing to Titus, I want you to pay attention in Titus 3 to the relational language and the way envy gets in the way of love in this passage. So Paul's writing to Titus. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. So nice, loving, caring language. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Love and envy put in contrast, kindness to people and envy are polar opposites. Perhaps the most clear and most famous place to see it is in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy. You cannot love where envy is present. Envy is the enemy of love. So in this world and in this Christian journey where we're told, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy. Where we're told that the fruit of the Spirit in us is love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We're told in Romans that God has poured love into his, our hearts by His Spirit that's supposed to catalyze the way that we move. That, that love compels us as we do our work in the world as we're called to be agents of love. Envy is always going to get in the way of our ability to love the world the way we're supposed to and perhaps even more so to love the people in this room who are part of the church with you the way that you're called to love them. Uh, Rebecca DeYoung has a fantastic book called Glittering Vices. We read it last year with the book group. Um, we're, we're, if you want information on the book group, come and talk to me. Um, anyone's welcome to join at any point. But, but I want to give you a description that Rebecca DeYoung writes in her book of what it means to be caught in envy. And I want to see where you find yourself in this paragraph description. It's not going to be on the screen. This is what she says. Envy betrays itself with a variety of symptoms. Feeling offended at the talents, successes, or good fortune of others. 
selfish or unnecessary rivalry and competition, pleasure at other people's difficulties or distress, ill will, reading false motives into others' behavior, belittling others, false accusations, backbiting, so saying something bad even if true behind another's back, slander, saying something bad even if true in the open about another, the initiation, collection, or retelling of gossip, arousing, fostering, or organizing antagonism against others, scorn of another's abilities or failures, teasing or bullying, ridicule of persons, institutions, or ideals, and prejudice against those we consider inferior, who consider us inferior, or who seem to threaten our security or position. See yourself in there somewhere? I think I could go down that list and write a whole bunch of things that I am guilty of in every one of those categories. We can talk about envy as opposed to the gospel. We can talk about it as a sin thing that exists out there. I think we've got to remember the way envy exists within the church. When Paul is writing his letters, he's not addressing out there. He's addressing the people in the church. He's telling us in the church, don't be envy. Don't be envious. Don't envy one another. Don't provoke one another. He's telling the people in the church that love is patient and kind and shouldn't envy. How easy it is to put Christian clothes over things and, and think we're not dealing with the same problems. We deal with envy in the church where we're looking at someone else's gift or opportunity and we begin to speak negatively about them because they get an opportunity that we don't have. We do it when we belittle someone else or their belief system because, well, they vote that way or they vote that way or they hold this theology or they hold that theology. Partly putting someone else down to elevate ourselves because we're finding some value and worth in the comparison. What's the cure? With all of these messages, we want to lean into, okay, we know we've got this in us. We know that envy leads to jealousy and covetousness and other worse things, divisions, uh, and even outright sabotage of people. Um, But what's the cure? I've got five pictures that we're going to put up here to explore the cure for envy. Number one is simply admit our envy. And every issue that we deal with in life and in spirituality, step one in moving towards change is just to admit that the thing exists. Important piece here, admit it to yourself and to other people. One of the challenges with envy is envy is rooted in a sense of inferiority, right? So I'm going to put someone else down to make myself feel superior, I'm looking at what someone else has and feeling like I don't have it. So somehow I'm not as worthy as they are. One of the biggest ways to challenge this vice in our life is to look at someone else and say, you know, I looked at this person this week with envy. They have this thing that I long for and I don't have it. And I don't know if I'll ever get it because I don't know if I'm good enough to achieve what they have. Step one is admitting that exists to ourselves and then to others. Step two, we need a new vision for our self-worth. 
This is why we do what we do as the church. It's why we come to scriptures. It's why we sing worship songs that remind us of who God is and what our relationship is to him. It's why we gather on Sundays and during the week in homes and why we read, app, uh, read Bible and books and, and listen to apps that guide us through what it is that God's calling us to do. We need a new vision for our self-worth. You come to the word and you read those things. You know, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have value and purpose and and intent. And it doesn't matter if someone has a bigger business than you or a better title than you or a larger church than you, you are in. It doesn't matter because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You hear the verses like we read in pre-service prayer today, Isaiah 48. God says, I created you. I redeemed you. I called you by name. You are mine. Exodus, you are my treasured possession. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're a child of God. These verses, our worth is supposed to be found in him, but we're still caught finding our worth in our perfectionism, in our relationship, in the clothes that we wear, the house that we have, how productive we feel. One of the challenges in retirement, right, Um not being there yet, but what I hear from people all the time, one of the challenges is looking at people that are working and and people that are busy and productive and going, I just don't feel like I'm valued as much. Like, I, I can't do as much. I'm worthless because I don't have a job and I don't have something productive and I can't look at the end of the day and say, look what I did. We've, we're still, even in retirement, finding value in the work that we used to do. We've got to reorient where our value is When the Bible says that you can lie on the watches of the night and God is there, Um, what God is here in us, even in old age, he's working in and through us. We need a new vision for our self-worth. How is your self-worth today? What vision is driving you? Tied to that, number three, we have to self-reflect on our identity and values. And how does that work? We need, we need a new vision. We've got to self-reflect. When you feel envious towards someone, it is pointing to the areas where you feel inferior. It is pointing to the things that you've built your identity around. It is pointing to the things that you value. So I was looking at this guy, I wish I could remember his name, I want to say it's Paul, um, when I was in college, I was looking at this guy, I was like, he's better looking than me, he's got a better friend group than me, he's cooler than me, he's better dressed than me, I'm like a geek over here, he's living up at college, I'm living at home, he probably has money, I don't. Um, so all of those things were revealing in me, I care, we know this from a couple of weeks ago, right, I care about appearance. Uh, too much, often. I care about success and status. I care about relationships and being seen in a particular light. I care about doing things really well. And I build all my identity around that. So what you've got to do is when you find yourself feeling envious of someone else, is say, what is it in that person that I am attracted to and that is causing me resentment? What's it revealing about my inferiority, where I'm placing my worth? Um, And that becomes a beautiful place for conversation with Jesus. Like I'm looking at this person and longing for the kind of success that they're having in their life right now. God, help me to be content where you've placed me. If there's stuff that I'm not doing that would make me more successful, God, help me to be disciplined and self-controlled to do what you're asking me to do. 
But if not, help me not to make success my idol and instead to be content where you have me and to serve you wholeheartedly and faithfully in the position that you've placed me. Then God through that does mighty work in you. The fourth one, I mean, this is the answer all the time. (laughs) And it might seem strange in here, but becoming aware of God's presence is a cure for envy. Because if you remember, envy objectifies the people around us. And on the other hand, envy says I'm somehow inferior to the people that are around me. So one of the cures to the issue of identity is beginning to notice, well, I'm not inferior. God is here. He's in what I'm doing. When I'm at home, lying in my bed in pain, God is here with me because he values me. When I'm at work and what feels like a dead-end job, slaving away for very little money, trying my best, and it feels like I'm getting nowhere, God is here with me. Um, That awareness of his presence Uh, solidifies our identity and our worth so that we don't have to find it in another person. So are you growing in your awareness of where he's present? And are you aware of his presence in the other person? I think about my meeting with this guy in the coffee shop and the correction that happened in that moment that was humbling for me. I wonder what would have happened if sitting in the subway station, watching him walk down the stairs with his friend, having my heart filled with resentment, if I'd sought the presence of God in the moment, if I'd sought to see where God might be working redemptively in that person's life, the gifts and the value and the blessing that he's been given, I wonder what might have been different about how I reacted. The last cure, which I'm just going to tell you, is the hardest This is so difficult when you're stuck in envy. Celebrate their success. And you see that person that your heart has grown to resent and you see that they suddenly got a promotion. Rather than inside going, they don't deserve that, I deserve that promotion. Rather than going home to a family member or a friend and saying, here's all the reasons why this is unjust and they should not have got this. Try going home to someone and saying, you know, this person got a promotion today and they deserved it. They did this and I've noticed this and I am envious and I wish it was me and I feel so inferior today, but I just want to confess that to you and I want to celebrate. You want to go the step harder? Go to the person. Congratulate. I've worked really hard. I really wanted this. That's the hardest part, right? I I really wanted it. I'm so bummed that I missed out, but I'm so uh, proud of you and I just want to congratulate you on your success. And again, we don't do it just for the sake of doing it and faking it and looking like a good Christian. These are the moments where, like, outwardly, you get to fake it, right? (laughs) Way to go. Don't think you deserve it at all, but way to go. You can fake it outwardly as long as your internal response is going, God, help me to understand what I'm feeling right now. Why do I have to fake celebrating this person's success? What in me makes me the judge of them? What in me makes it my job to decide who's worthy and who isn't? And we begin to pay attention to our inner response and invite Jesus into it. 
So much work will happen in the moment you make the decision. If I was going to go congratulate Joe over here, the decision to walk from here to there, so much work is going to happen with me and Jesus just getting from here to there. I don't want to do this. You told me not to be envious. I'm going to walk over. Oh, congratulations. And then you see the joy on their face. If God wants to sanctify you further, the person's going to go, yeah, I totally deserved it and you're just scum. Um, And that's another opportunity for God to work in us and through us. But So how, how do we cure this envy thing? We've got to admit that it's there first and foremost. We need new vision for our self-worth. Uh, we've got to self-reflect on our identity and our values that are exposed in those moments of envy. We've got to cultivate greater awareness of God's presence, both as that impacts our worth in the moment and then stopping us from objectif- objectifying the people around about us. And then lastly, and, and most difficult, we celebrate the successes we feel in those we envy. And we admit it to the people around about us in a way that exposes our sense of inferiority and creates the greatest space for God to come in and to work. To wrap it all up, you have to think about Jesus, right? The perfect example of love on the earth. He could have looked at the Pharisees and said, like, they have more study than me and respect within the system than me. He could have looked at Pilate and gone, in this moment, he has more power and authority than me. He could have looked at his disciples and at some point gone, that guy's getting more attention than me. We can look at the disciples and they then, uh, they wrestled with it, right? Like John the Baptist, his people are following him more than me. And Jesus is like, who cares? Like, they're going to come to me. Let them go be baptized with John. Let what's happened happen. It's going to happen. Stop stressing out about it. But Jesus, this person, how could he live without envy? Because he knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from. He knew the value that he had. And so from that place, he could walk out into the world. And rather than seeing the world round about as competition to be dominated in order to come out on top, He could see these as people to be loved so that he could get lower and lower and lower to lift up the people who were around him. So let's, this week, work on identifying the envy in us, admitting it, and casting it aside in order to be people who are marked by the love of Jesus. Let me pray. God, this stuff is always so hard. Um... (laughs) God, they're called the capital vices or the deadly sins for a reason because they're so prevalent in us and they fuel so much of what we do and we're caught in ruts that we don't even realize. So God, in the places where we resent someone for what they have, would you help us uh, to have compassion and grace toward them? Lord, in the places where we, inf- we feel inferior, would you come and minister to us and help us see the worth that you've given us? Lord, in the places where we feel like we have to compete to come out on top, God, may you show yourself present in those moments in a way that lets us sit back and rest. God, we want to look and act and sound a lot more like Jesus. So God, help us to rid ourselves of envy and to crave the pure spiritual milk that you offer. In Jesus' name. So just before we worship, I want you to do what we've done the last couple of messages. I want you to turn to a person next to you. Uh, what's one thing from what you heard today that challenged you and what are you going to do about it and then take a moment to pray for the person that you're talking to and then we'll end with worship